Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's or on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. Thank you, everyone, for always listening in, sharing, giving good reviews to the episodes for the entrepreneurs that are on the show. Again, the purpose of it is to share their message. The higher the ratings and the views, obviously, the better they do. And the more entrepreneurs that can be influenced uh, by their story and the more impact that can be made. So that being said, I have Annalisa Mastroianni Johnson of Annie's Soul Delicious out of Los Angeles, California. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. So Tell us your story, Annalisa. Like, where did you start? How did you become an entrepreneur? Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family? Um, how did I start? I think I started young. I just always wanted to do my own thing. And I had different jobs, and none of them quite suit me the way I wanted to live my life. So um, I started a couple different little companies, and then I got into food. And I never really knew I had an affinity for food until I started doing it. Um, and then I decided I was really good at it. So I started gourmet home meal delivery. And this is back in the days before, you know, there was 20,000 companies doing it. And that morphed into catering. And then when we started doing catering about five, six years ago, we found a little niche in soul food. And we started doing soul food and it became so popular that now we have a full-blown restaurant. So let's talk about this a little bit. Like, sure. Where did, I mean, did your family cook? Did your grandmother cook? Like, where did that yeah, you know. sort of okay. come from? You got it. So I come from an Italian family. My father's Italian. My mother's Swedish. Both of them are excellent cooks. Um, we, my parents were like the first foodies. I mean, before the word was popular, my mother would go through the L.A. Times and find articles on restaurants, and we would drive to wherever to go eat. So I was born, like, in a family that loved food. And growing up, we just, we just ate at all these random places all over the place. And my mother cooked these really, like, intense meals just from scratch. Like, the bread was from scratch, and if she could figure it out, the butter was from scratch. She just cooked, and she didn't cook a lot, but when she did, she was just detailed and precise about everything. And my dad wasn't home a lot, but when he was home, he could just throw together a meal, too. And, you know, as a kid, I cooked, but I never really thought about it, and I never thought about it as a career, never. Furthest thing from my mind. Um, but as I got older, I started to cook, and or I would work at a place and I would kind of tweak their menu a little bit and adjust things. And I realized I just had a knack for it. And it just developed that way. And my parents encouraged me because both of them are fascinated by food. I mean, so many of our holiday discussions are about food. Our family discussions are about food. But we would talk about, you know, what we're going to eat for dinner as we were eating breakfast. So we are just a food-loving family. Um Let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what sure. was what was it like to be driven? I mean, it's a different experience. I somewhat understand it because my dad was in the airline food business growing up uh, uh -huh. with Marriott and then eventually a company called Caterer. And there was a lot of diversity from around the world in food. Um, I didn't necessarily have the diversity in food in my home, but definitely outside of it. So 
like what are the things that you loved and remembered being cooked in your home and what are some of the restaurants that you went to that might be still around today I guess if there is any God I don't know if it's still around so I was lucky enough to grow up with a dad in the music business and because he was in the music business we ate out a lot and we had friends from a little bit of everywhere so I mean there was gosh there was an Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills called La Familia that we ate it all the time. We ate a lot of Italian food. Um, but I just, we ate everywhere. Like my parents would take me to really nice restaurants. They never had that mindset that, oh, you know, we'll feed her dinner at like, you know, at home and then we'll go out to eat. I was an only child. So they were able to take me everywhere. And I was just part of the group. So when I was young, for example, Rick James used to have these beautiful sushi spreads this is before sushi was a thing. I think I was like eight, nine years old. So started eating sushi early. And then, you know, maybe some other artist had soul food backstage, uh, Stevie Wonder, for example. So we'd have soul food there. So it was just always an eclectic choice of food. And living in LA, you know, you had great Mexican food. You just had a great choice of food. And that was always available. And my mother would just make, gosh, favorite dishes my mother was amazing um i mean even my mother's tacos she would spend three hours and chop everything and everything would be the same size but my mother would make veal piccata and roast chicken and homemade raviolis and just god my mother well gosh even to think of all the things that she made she used to make this chili relleno casserole that was amazing she made homemade cinnamon rolls and fresh bread and just, she just loved to cook. Again, she didn't do it very often because it was more her and I a lot. So we would go out to dinner a lot, but when she did, it was always just a really well thought out meal. I, I really like this. Cause one of the things I want to talk about is like in Nashville, there's a lot of this like show business that goes into the food because of the nature of the music business being here. Is it a right. lot like that in LA? I mean, you talked about growing up in your father being a musician. So there's already that show business that's going on in that entertainment value. Do you feel that that's in the food there in LA because of the nature of the environment? And I mean, you grew up around it and you're talking about these spreads. So it's also showtime every time the sh the artist or the showman or showwoman does their event, right? Yeah, I mean, I think back then, these artists would have very intricate uh, menus that they would choose. And, you know, it was a little bit more glamorous than, it, than concerts are today. They were, like, really well thought out. These people had bands. You know, now there's a performer that goes on show on stage with sneakers and, you know, a DJ. It's not as well thought out. But they used to have these catering tables and these spreads. And, you know, when you were a, a big star back then, you could request whatever you wanted. I mean, again, like I said, with Rick James having sushi or having soul food catered or whatever it was, like there wasn't even a question. People in, I know you hear the famous stories about, you know, people having riders that say, only green M&Ms and stuff like that. And I don't know if artists are as particular as they are now, but when you live that life and we would hang out with these people, you went to all these different restaurants, you went to all these different nightclubs, you ate at the best places, and you just got exposed to everything. 
And, and I so, do think soul food's in L.A. too. I mean, I think food, I think L.A. is, you know, it's just kind of a place to be. So I think people come to L.A. for the food as well in the entertainment business. I, I service a lot of entertainers. And, um, you know, people are just so glad to have a home-cooked meal or something that's reminiscent of what they grew up on. And soul food is that for a lot of people. So help me get from how you grew up Italian and going to Italian restaurants all over to soul food because I'm not, I mean, I I think both are great. Don't get me wrong. And I'm Italian as well. So, but I love soul food as well. But the connection for me is a little bit different. How did, I mean, I didn't start a business around it. So I can still enjoy it without like, because that's a whole different animal. And so tell me about this. First of all, I want to say that I know soul food is considered Southern food, but soul food is whatever kind of makes your soul food, your soul feel good. And, you know, a bowl of pasta with good olive oil and Parmesan cheese is soul food for me as well. Um, But I grew up around a great variety of people, and I learned from all these people and my godmother, who happens to be Rick James' sister, once again in my life. And I grew up with her and Tina Marie, and they ate a lot of soul food, and she cooked from scratch. So I learned how to cook at an early age. And as I got through my life and we started catering, I wanted to do something different. I mean, everybody was doing, you know, grilled steak, mashed potatoes and a vegetable. So I thought, let me branch out and work and do specifically soul food. And we started doing catering and we were doing soul food and people were saying, oh my God, this is amazing. Where can we come? And I'm like, we don't have a restaurant. You know, we just do catering. And it became a question that was asked more and more as we were out and when we were doing events and we did these pop-ups and we did four to eight a week. And after that question was asked for a year, we ended up opening soul food Sundays at our establishment where we were doing gourmet home meal delivery. So I think that I just knew how to cook. I think I had a knack for it. And I loved the food and the story behind Soul Food, and I connected with it. And um, I had a great group of people around me that helped me develop these recipes um, that tasted everything that I did to the point where they're like, ugh, can't have another bite. But we worked it all out, and it's, it's an amazing menu of really heartfelt dishes that resonate with people Um and it just make people feel good. But nobody expects this white Italian, half Italian, yeah. half Swedish girl to yeah. cook this food. We laugh yeah. about it all the time. They always say, are you sure you're not Creole? Are you sure you're not this? And I always say, no, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I know who I am. So I think it's, I always tell people that everybody's born with a talent. And we're lucky enough if we get to find out what it is. And I can cook. So I can cook Italian food. I can cook most anything. But soul food and Italian food and comfort food in general are my thing. Because my love language is food. So I cook food that makes people feel like they've been hugged. I love this. It's interesting that you say that because it's not actually one of the love languages. But I agree with you. It should be because the communication... To me, it's the same, like everything around food, like, I don't know how to explain it, 
but I'll say it this way and I'm Italian. Like the passion, the intimacy, the love, the the dating, the the mating dance, whatever you want to call it, even when you're married, even like keeping that fire going is around food for me. Like it's the going out and it's going to eat and you know, maybe there is a movie in there, but there's a lot around food for me and going out and being romantic around food and enjoying a meal. I will say that it doesn't matter what type of food it is, honestly. Um, or where the environment is. There's just a lot in the human connection there. There is. There's something. Well, food, obviously, you make it with your hands. You make it with your heart. You make it with your head. I mean, look, I could be married or have a boyfriend. He can go grab me a purse from any store without a thought. But to sit home and create a meal together and create flavors and talk and discuss it, is probably way more intimate than any gift that somebody could give me. It's truly, truly a gift. And I realized that I had started a business that ended up not going any place. But I was like house-sitting for people and running errands. It was kind of like an early task rabbit. And one of the things that I would do when I left, if I was house-sitting, I would leave a bowl of soup for somebody or leave a bowl of black eyed peas or leave a pan of macaroni and cheese because when I was at these people's house I didn't know what else to do while I was house sitting but cook something and I figured oh if I'm going to use their stuff and (laughs) be here I might as well leave it for them and it was always their favorite part of it and everybody was just like oh my god I love this I love this I can taste it I can taste it you know but they could I think you can taste when people love you in their food I mean like Look at the difference between jack-in-a-box, you know what I mean, and a home-cooked meal. There's just something you don't get. And um, that's really been my blessing with people is that they always say, I taste it. I just taste it. And I know exactly what they mean. What's your favorite? I mean, let's just talk about, like, out of soul food. Like, what's your favorite food, like, where to cook or to serve? Like, where... You know, we can talk about the most popular, but what's your favorite to sort of cook? Well, my favorite is the most popular. It's the oxtails. They're amazing. And I think the banana pudding are probably my two favorite things. In fact, I don't even make the banana pudding anymore because I make myself so sick from eating it while I'm cooking it that I just can't do it anymore. It's my favorite thing. It's the perfect, perfect, perfect dessert. And the oxtails are something that a lot of people were raised on, but if they're not cooked right, they're tough and they're nothing special. And if they're cooked to precision, they're amazing, fall off the bone uh, perfection, and not many people can do it like that. And um, they're typically associated with Caribbean or Jamaican places. And people say, oh, are they Jamaican-style oxtails? And I say, no, they're classic soul food. And then people eat them, and they're like, oh, my God. Like, it's the biggest thing we get is, oh, my God, you were right. And uh, maybe because I talk about them so much, they they are our biggest seller. But, um, you know, they were a throwaway food. But, again, Italians eat oxtails, and Mexicans eat oxtails, and Chinese eat oxtails, and Filipinos eat oxtails. Everybody eats oxtails because they were all really cheap, you know, food that nobody wanted. So they gave them to the poor people. And they figured out how to stew them and make perfection out of them. And now we're so blessed with one of the juiciest, most flavorful pieces of meat there are. I agree with you, actually. And I've even seen, like, the meat boiled off and, like, broken out and made meatballs. I mean, <clears throat> for an yes. oxtail. And it's, um, 
there's just so many uses of it that are oh. pretty incredible that I think um, that it's just such an which I like diversity in food, especially in proteins and the animals that are on our planet. And it's just eating the whole animal and trying to utilize the whole animal is really important to me. Right. And I so agree. that and being said, think, it's like, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say the way it's marbled and like, it's funny because when people hear oxtails, you know, sometimes young people come into the restaurant, they're like, I'm not eating somebody's butt. I'm like, you're not eating butt, you're eating a tail, but they're turned off by it. But once they taste it and like the marbling in the oxtail is better than any ribeye that you could ever eat and more flavorful and just the way it melts. I mean, again, like you said, an Italian bolognese or in a ragu or something, it's just, it's just something undescribable. And to eat the cow from top to bottom, like you said, it's, it's a luxury to be able to have that available to you. And people don't realize that. I mean, more pieces are becoming available or more common nowadays, but it's just because people only knew what to do with certain pieces and they threw away everything else because they weren't familiar. But now that people are familiarizing themselves with other parts, they're becoming more popular. Oxtails used to be throwaway two ninety nine. Now oxtails are, you know, eight, nine dollars a pound. Which I know it's crazy. Doesn't right? work for us, but it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> I saw that in the grocery store. I'm like, they used to be like the cheapest things on the planet. For like, sure. Why right? is this happening right now? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the supermarkets are marking up everything extremely more because they know they can get away with it right now. That, I'm well, just saying. I will tell you this. My meat guy told me that during the pandemic, especially, oxtails became really popular overseas. So a lot of our meat big companies started selling them overseas and they got a better price and they just matched the price. And if people wanted them, they had to pay for them. We need but more again, oxes. <laughs> we do. But you know, then again, when something becomes popular, like again, I love risotto. You're Italian, you know, risotto yeah, probably cost about what? 30, 40 cents to make. Yeah. It's so amazing. And in a restaurant, it's $23, $25. I know, I know. Throw some and fancy mushrooms on there and it's $28. Exactly. Butter, wine, mushrooms, chicken stock, and rice. How did that become a $23 dish? I know, and it's basically an Italian porridge, for lack of a better term, exactly. to serve for dinner. For sure. You know, when you didn't have anything else in the house and you wanted something, you, you make risotto. Again, you know, but now it's risotto. It's, it sounds beautiful and elegant. And, you know, you could put a scallop on it and get 30-some dollars. Yeah. And so, <laughs> Especially in L.A. <laughs> so the oxtails are the, the, I mean, this is a really cool concept. And I like this because it's so brave what you've done because you're taking your personal identity, okay, which is, or your brand. Sorry, I use the word identity right now. That's fine. And um, but brand and um, and then you have your like the one the brand that you grew up with, meaning the influence that led you to soul food and led uh -huh. you to do this concept. So, what are some of the other dishes that you serve or, or that you guys do? Um, in the in this, like the oxtails are just beginning. Tell me about the sides. Tell me about the layering of okay. the food. Like, how do you go about all that? How do you source your ingredients even? Well, we do a five-cheese uh, macaroni and cheese, and again, something decadent and simple and comfortable. 
and none of the cheeses are foreign cheeses that, you know, stink or smell or are unfamiliar. They're all familiar, but the blend of all of them together just make the creamiest, richest macaroni and cheese. And unless you're from another planet, and yes, there's at least one or two people a month that come in and say, oh, I don't eat macaroni and cheese. And I look at them as if they are from another planet. But like, who doesn't eat macaroni and cheese, right? So there's that. There's our yams that we do with this magic butter. But we call it magic butter because everybody like oohs and ahs over it. But we start with a, a, a butter and then we put four ingredients into it and we blend it in the kitchen and we sell it with our cornbread muffins. We don't sell it. We give it with our cornbread muffins. We're going to start selling packaging and selling it and we make our yams with it and we slow cook them and we caramelize them. And it's just, you know, soul food's not as much about expensive ingredients. It's about the time and the energy and the love that goes into it because it's not a fast dish. Nothing in soul food is fast. So, you know, we run out of yams and people say, oh, when are you going to have more yams? I'm like, "Uh, three hours, you know, but that's how long it takes to cook yams. And greens take a long time. And we boil down the turkey legs and season the water and get it nice and flavorful. And then we put the greens in there. It's just a, it's an art. It's truly an art. Um, and it's so funny because I can't draw a cat. I, there's so many things I can't do artistically, but I can cook. And that's why I say, you know, it's my love language because I couldn't draw you a beautiful poster or painting or anything, but I can cook for you, which I think nourishes your whole body in another way. But, um, yeah, soul food is just time-consuming and slow and a lot of prep. But everything we make there, we make from scratch. There is nothing that we buy. And uh, we have a guy who does all of our shopping, typically three times a week, and he gets our five cheeses. And every once in a while, they'll miss a cheese, and I don't even know what to do. Like, I'll have to source it someplace else because – People will know when my macaroni and cheese isn't exactly what it's supposed to be. Even I know. Um, and for a while during the pandemic, we couldn't find large elbow macaroni noodles of all things. But, you know, during the pandemic, it was just crazy. So we use smaller yep, noodles. Same and here, were like, even on a Why are you using scale? these small noodles? <laughs> and I'm like, because that's all there is. People, like, we're in the middle of, yeah, you know, the world ending. Like the, there's Come a on. pasta shortage everywhere. It's really weird. <laughs> I know is just the craziest thing is because there were so many lows and highs, but we had some great highs during the pandemic that I have to say. But, I mean, just sourcing ingredients uh, obviously was difficult. But, um, you know, there was times we were out of stuff. But, yeah, it's just, let's see, my favorite, macaroni and cheese. My other favorite is the yams. Um, we do a cabbage with bell peppers and onions and carrots that's slow cooked and it has a little lemony vinegar taste that just has enough acid to cut the fat from the macaroni and cheese so you don't feel overwhelmed. Um, the short ribs are slow cooked. We sear them with our house-made rub and then we slow cook them in a broth that we make for four hours. And when they come out, we just cut them. And again, they just fall apart and they're just something about them that just I don't know there's nothing like it there's just nothing like it it's rare that I find food that somebody spends as much attention 
and time on as we do in my kitchen. And I eat out a lot. Yeah, me too. Um, just by the nature of working my schedule that I do. And I also right. find that being alone all the time, like I spend, might spend more on groceries than I actually do on grabbing a quick bite, to eat, oh, healthy yeah. bite to eat or like go, stopping by, getting a bowl of gumbo or something here in Nashville. So I've been That's able so to do crazy. that. That's so crazy. I'm doing gumbo this week. Yeah. That you said it. They have this gumbo brothers cold in LA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's not fun to cook for one person. I mean, every once in a while, I whip up something for myself, but to I know. me, it's not fun because to me, again, cooking is truly like loving and watching somebody eat it and saying, "Oh my God, did you like it? What could I do?" And my kid, he's sixteen, and he's amazing, and his favorite thing is to like, "Mom, you should do this." Mom, you make that. Mom, can we do this? You know, so he loves to make certain adjustments to my cooking. And because he grew up around me, he has one of the best palates ever. So if I'm making lemon pepper wings, he'll say, oh, mom, you need a little bit more lemon. Or, hey, mom, it's a little heavy on the salt. Or he's just great. And he eats everything. So taking him to restaurants and getting his take on stuff or asking him his opinion is kind of like he's kind of my test zone. Because not that he's a difficult eater, but I know for his age, like if he loves it, then it's good, good. Because he's he's not picky as far as what he likes. He's picky as far as knowing what he likes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, right. It's interesting. He's a kid that'll eat everything, but he's very specific and he doesn't like bad food. <laughs> well, and I, it's interesting that you say that. I would say my stepkids were like that a lot. Um as we traveled the world and as they're, and they are palates and the older one was very, um, um, into food and being a foodie and trying new food. So it worked out really well for me as a step parent. But right. one of the things that I will say that as I've transitioned and like cooking for myself, it is so hard and not enjoying when you can't put love into it for someone else yeah. also. And one of the things that I don't, that I have that I've really thought about, and it's interesting this came up, and I'm going to go off on a commentary real quick, just from an entrepreneur standpoint and from a mindset standpoint, we spend a lot of time alone as entrepreneurs. And I think we don't realize how valuable that time is or that time to eat with other people is since we're in the food business. We kind of take food for granted sometimes. I know mm -hmm. I have. And even so, you know, even recently, every once in a while, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so valuable to eat together. Now what I'm going through is like, I don't like this whole thing of not of making myself food and putting love into it for myself. I get it. But it's a lot more fun when you have someone to connect with or do with or be around with. And it's there. It's just the way life is. But I find a lot in food in... Like how much of relationships could we be better through food? How much time could we oh. spend? How much love could we show to one another? And it's just been this like echoing thing in my head the last couple of days. So it's interesting that we're on this topic and I don't know if I'm forcing it because it's in my head or that no, it just No, but came. let me touch on that because I love, I love this train of thought. So during the pandemic, we were all separated from one another, whether it was by six feet or a state or whatever it was. We all were separate. And we used to do these community lunches for offices all the time. We service big companies and we'd big, bring these big trays and everybody would sit together at these tech companies or 
Nike or NFL, wherever we catered to. And they would all sit together in community and eat lunch together. I mean, there was a few people bring them back to their desk. So then we go through the pandemic. And of course, the restaurant, the food business, everything changed. We didn't close down one day during the pandemic. I just said, F it. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow the rules. I'll go by these silly guidelines, but I'm going to do it. And we grew our business through the pandemic. And I don't think it was just as much about the food, but it was about the connection that the food brought. It was not being able to get home to your mom or whatever, and they had food that tasted like home. It was even though it was in the middle of pandemic, they knew if they walked in the door, I was going to give them a hug if they needed it. It was people being separated from one another, people not at work, people's lives being upside down for the first time, you know, in their life being turned upside down like this. And then when we started coming back, we do catering in these little box lunches. And I just finally said, I can't do this because it wasn't what I do. And as badly as I needed the money, it just felt so plastic and, oh, what's the word? Just without love that I just said, you know what, I will wait. And I couldn't wait for the day that we were actually able to serve community style again. And people were next to each other and sharing and talking. And I think that the only thing that we had, like especially in L.A., because everything was shut down, that we had was food. That's all we had. Even if we had limited amounts, we couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't go to a bowling alley. We couldn't do anything. But we all could sit down and eat. And maybe we couldn't do it together, but we could do that. And I know through that time, I probably gained 47 pounds. My kid was like, Mom, if you cook anymore, I'm going to burst. But that's the way I could get through this hard time was by cooking for people. Because I didn't know, we all didn't know what was going on. And that was my way of giving somebody a hug and telling them it's going to be okay and we're here for you. And our business doubled over the pandemic oddly enough because of it well and i feel that and i said this like three years ago that if you hit the gas pandemic and you could get your whole team and your restaurant to go through it you were going to succeed in the other side and that people didn't get too entitled by everything being thrown at them because that it did happen that weirdly happened everyone yeah. got so much free money they got weirdly entitled yeah but we it, didn't get free money so yeah <laughs> We had a struggle, <laughs> and it was a struggle. It really was, and it was crazy because we lost our main source of income, which was catering, but the but the restaurant grew, and people trusted us, and people trusted us to cook for them and love on them and be there for them, and we started holding community drives for homeless, for back-to-school supplies, for all these different things, and people showed up for us in unbelievable numbers, and with as much love and compassion as you could ever imagine. And here was this older Italian white lady trying to bring this community together because she had nothing else to do during this time but to cook. <laughs> you know, my kid was homeschooling. You know, it was just there was nothing in this world to do but to cook and give to other people. I... I... 
I totally agree. And I think the giving, I think there was a lot of that. Everyone was trying to give and help. And the businesses that were there, they were just trying to, including the, you know, my business, we were just trying to make sure that we kept enough business coming in to keep everyone employed right. so they had could stay working and not have to go find jobs when there aren't any right. and uh, yeah. or take a job they didn't want to take in fast food that weren't right. the hours they could <laughs> take with their kids. And so right. like there was a lot of that and a lot of sacrifice and things didn't always go well. Um, no. Not for a lot of people. And and I think there were a lot of businesses that did well. And I think there were, were some that didn't do so well. And it was all about the mindset. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here is that mindset. So let's talk about this. Um, like you grew up, your father was in the music business. You weren't in the food business, although your parents were foodies. What? Who were some of your greatest mentors or, or leaders that influenced you or maybe instilled in you core values that you're using today as an entrepreneur or as a human to find success? I have to say my father and my grandmother are the two hardest working people I've ever met in my life. This is a great example. My grandmother used to take the bus to work. She got up one morning, walked to the bus stop. On her way to the bus stop, she got hit by a car. She was probably 60-some years old. She told the guy, you son of a bitch, you made me miss my bus. Now you're going to drive me to work. That's just who my grandmother was. So this man, you know, drove her to work. She ended up needing knee surgery and everything else. But she had never missed a day of work in her life, and she wasn't going to because that son of a bitch hit her. (laughs) But, I mean, it's just she's an older, obstinate, stubborn Italian woman. And my dad just always told me, if you don't work, you don't eat. And now I'm learning that maybe that's not like great way to learn because I am a workaholic, but because I love what I do, it doesn't always feel like it. Um, And luckily I have a kid who's a big athlete. And so I get to take my time off and spend that with him because of what I do. But I really enjoy it. And but my dad just always taught me that hard work pays off. And because he was in the music business, he did his nine to five and then he covered shows afterwards, you know. So he was an agent during the day, but he still had to show up at shows. And my dad is 79 years old and he's still out covering the shows. I mean, we went to Isley Brothers and Frankie Beverly and Mays the other night because it was his show and he doesn't live in LA. So I just went to the show to spend time with him and he's just a freaking rock star still. And he's just, again, he's just that guy. He's just that guy that always provided, always led by example, always showed me that it was possible. Never told me like, well, he might've asked me if I was out of my mind a few times, but like, he questioned me, yeah, me but in an intelligent way, not in a demeaning way. You know, like, are you sure you got this? Like, what if this? And just always provided me an avenue. Because I always said to him, like, why didn't you, like, encourage me to be an attorney or do this or do that? He said, you never worked well for other people. And I thought, okay, I was an only child. I was headstrong. I was bossy. All these things. But they all seem to lead me to this path. But yeah, my dad and my grandmother, amazing. I mean, she's my grandmother's not with me anymore, but she was she was such a rock star. Like she was a rock star just my grandmother went to college at seventy some years old and got such high grades that like the teachers would write on the paper, I'm not even sure how to grade this. 
it's so amazing. She wrote books. And this was a woman who wasn't born into riches like poverty and, you know, made something out of nothing and bought a house. And she was just great. She just had a work ethic and a love and a passion about her. And oh, even when she was old and tired, she just would not buy store-bought bread. So she just made her own bread because the other stuff was trash and she wouldn't do it. You know, and she was like old and tired. It's like, Grandma, relax. No, 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 no. They can't do it like I can. So I think that's where I got it from. I'm yeah, I love sure. this. I love this. So anyone outside your family, was there anyone in all the years of being around your dad that really had impact on you as a as a kid, being around all the celebrities and the musicians? Yeah, you know, I think my greatest gift by that upbringing is that I was never taught that you are just what you are. You you can be whatever. I mean, I was raised around a host of wonderful, amazing people. Prince, Rick James, Tina Marie, and all these people. And it was never, uh, you have to be this or you have to be that. They were just family to us. So it wasn't a black and a white issue. You know, and I, I don't even know if race relations were relevant back then. I'm sure they were, but I never felt that. So when I was at somebody's house and my godmother was black, it wasn't like, oh my God, your godmother's black. No, it was just my godmother. You know, we didn't think about it. So the way my dad raised me was a blessing because he was head of the black music department at William Morris. But it wasn't like, oh, that's them and this is us. It was just one thing. And that's all I knew. So when people would question or comment on it, I would just look at them like, what? I remember getting my hair braided when I was younger. They're like, oh, that's a black hairstyle. You can't do that. And I was like, what? Like, you know, it just, it wasn't a conversation we had in our house. It was just people are people. And because of that, I mean, again, I was raised by legends. I mean, I got to hang out with Prince and Rick James and Tina Marie and Stevie Wonder. And, you know, what kid gets to do that? So I don't know if there was like one person, but so all cool. of that influence was just, it, it made me who I am. Well, and one of the things I, I was lucky enough to like travel a lot as a kid and go to right. a very diverse school um, on an international uh -huh. level in DC with a lot of like diplomats and stuff as well as local kids and kids on scholarships. So not all one school district. So we were very economically diverse also based on scholarships uh -huh. in a Catholic school that you could have families with like 12 kids. And right. um, as you know, <laughs> as an Italian. So, um, but so I like this too, because I never, until I got to college, I actually never saw it. And everyone was talking about diversity. And I'm just like, wait a second. What do you mean we need to call it that? Isn't it something that should be just done right. and understood naturally? Right. Like when we need to make it a rule, it's not actually being done in the human mind as a concept where we're accepting and we're having to use rules to create it and we're not actually using our minds to create the boundaries. But that's a whole other topic. But right. the, one of the things was like in our mind is where it sits and like it's not something someone can establish for us or market. We have to be able to go experience and expose ourselves and just realize whatever. So I agree with you on that one. Um, but I also, one of the things that you talked about, I think, which was really cool is the 
the way your dad looked at life and an open mind and I think and also in a way that there wasn't a lot of fear like you could be whatever you wanted to be and like your mind was a tool not something to to create fear that held you back and I think that that's just so true and I think the same for your grandmother I mean she got hit by a car and then went to work so there's like that it's like my mom getting kicked by a horse in the ribs and then working for two days before she realized her ribs broke it's like okay because I grew up on a farm I'm like you know mom at some point you stop breaking things and like carrying it around for days at a time you would shorten your recovery time but it wasn't the only time and um and it's just one of those things that I think um my point being is I just feel like work ethic, um, having a strong foundation and having good core values transcends all that stuff anyway. And it, it's like when we're all the same and we all believe in the same thing and growing those around us and being true and we're around a lot of mm, hyper-functioning humans that are successful, we, we, we care less about those things because we see humans in a way that you know, we want to be around humans that are of value, that are of not of value, meaning that they're generating value and legacy and benefiting each other and ourselves, and we can benefit them and ourselves, and I think, and, and themselves, and um, if that makes sense. It does, and I just think that things are different nowadays because people are so delicate and they're so nervous around each other to say things i mean we joke about it all the time there's people that walk into the restaurant they're like you're annie i'm like yeah <laughs> like you cook this food and like yeah you know and we joke about it but i try and make it really light for people because everybody's so worried about offending each other and saying the wrong thing and using the right pronouns that i grew up in a time where we didn't worry about that if somebody called you hun it wasn't being demeaning it was just a term you know I didn't take offense and now I think people are more cautious and I grew up in a time of 52 that people were just a little bit more comfortable and it's funny because I know we've come a long way but almost we've come too far and become too careful um and but I do think when you just go down to the core value of the people it's so much easier to love somebody and to see them for what they are instead of being nervous about what you're going to say, what you're not going to say, how you're going to approach something. And just treat people who they are. Like, come on, people, stop finding a way around things. It's just, it's an odd time we're in. It's a very odd time. And I think part yeah. of it is there's so <laughs> much impact over like our personal brand, for lack of a better term, like not the business personal brand that people try to create, but like, I'm on social media and I got to be delicate and people can harass me and bully right. me and right. and what's my voice and everyone sees me and I got to be liked by everyone and it's like so compounded because of social media that it's right. almost like everyone's hypersensitive almost like you're walking around in a constant state of anxiety I feel like right. that's what happens in the next and even though they don't realize it compared to me and my generation like and I have anxiety as it is as a human that's how I became such a good entrepreneur probably it's um <laughs> it's um but like they're on a whole other level that's beyond ours like the phone anxiety oh. thing is just and the needing to answer and the snapchat and the that's an anxiety which I can't understand and I see it right. all the time and to me it's because of that anxiety there's almost like a hypersensitivity like if a horn just blew it'd be like ah 
You know, it's like that right. they're at that level now. So it's like anything that's intellectually stimulating beyond their their abil- their frame of mind at that time is just overwhelming and becomes controversial for right. lack of a better I term. I agree. And that's just I think people forgot just how to talk to each other. Like you don't have to have these deep discussions or solve world problems. Just have fun and laugh. Like, oh, you know, being in the food business is there's so much anxiety. There's like a problem that arises, what, every 15, 20 minutes. The burner doesn't go on. Somebody doesn't show up. You know, just always something. And you have to learn how to bounce back. And But there's something about your restaurant family that they're the least sensitive bunch. You know, look, I hire a lot of what they call second chancers. I hire mainly from federal halfway houses and these guys have been in prison these girls have been in prison so they're not so sensitive like they've been in prison you know like what could i say to them you know and it's funny because we have these great conversations that i know if it was in a corporate world that i would probably be written up and fired and everything else but we have these great laughable conversations with one another because everybody's been kind of at the bottom at some point and they're just happy to be connected to a group of people that are connected. And it's an amazing vibe that we have. And it's um, a very, like, it's a family. It's a very dysfunctional, crazy little family, but it's a family. Because we bump into each other. We touch each other all day. You know, we, we can't be careful of the kitchen. You can say hot behind or knife walking through, but you're going to step on somebody's toes. You're going to bump into somebody. You're going to brush against somebody's butt or breast at some point. And nobody takes it as a personal affront. It's just something that happens in the kitchen. And once you get to know that and you accept that, that people laugh and make jokes about it all day long. And it's, it's, it's great because we're not delicate and we're not careful. We're mindful. Because nobody wants to be mean to each other, but we're just we're just a family. I I think it's just one of the things that's being in food. One, it being Italian. The other thing is you learn to deal <laughs> with chaos, and there's just a natural right. sense of life that your parents teach you to have composure amongst fucking chaos. And um, <laughs> and I don't know how else to describe it because. When you're Italian, it's not that you create chaos. I, I think people think that it looks that way. I think Greeks get a lot of the same notion. <laughs> but what happens is you create such big dependency. And Italian families tend to be big providers in their community. And they get very involved in helping everyone and growing their community and growing other people's children and captaining the soccer team. I mean, or coaching or whatever. And or or schlepping everyone's kids around to go eat food, whatever it is. I felt like my parents always did that. Like the Italian families always made everyone their family and fed everyone also. And hey, there's like, there's like, you make, hey, how many bags of Doritos are you buying? Well, we better buy four in case Justin has his friends over on the farm. And they, she's like, oh, don't worry, Angela. We'll make them throw hay, but they'll eat those four bags of Doritos. You know, it's like, (laughs) we're going to feed everyone. But. Food is love. It's love, exactly. And I think that And it's... I will tell you this. You just remind me. My, I, it's funny because you asked me a couple questions before we talked. And I was really thought about it. And you just struck me one of the answers. 
But one day, it was a little bit crazy at the restaurant. I think we were running behind. We were short on people. And I was helping some people and whatever. It wasn't really a different day. It was just kind of a normal day for me. But whatever the case was. And that night, when I go home, I read my Instagram post. And I read people com- people's comments to me. And this one lady gave me the nicest compliment and it had nothing to do with food. She said something about being a woman in business, but she said you were so elegant and poised through all the chaos at your restaurant and you held your head high with such grace and dealt with your employees and the customers. I was in awe. And I was so flattered by that. Like people can say, oh, you have great oxtails and I love it. Don't get me wrong. Her noticing that without me even thinking about it was a huge compliment. And it's funny that you bring up the word chaos because it's just what I do. We have to manage chaos in a restaurant because you always kind of have to plan for the worst. So to have a woman say that, to have anybody say that to me, but especially for somebody to notice that, I was like, wow, thank you. Thank you. Like, you get it. Yeah, and one of the things that I will tell you, and this makes my relationships and friendships extremely hard at times, if you're, you haven't been in food or you haven't been on a farm or where you're in maybe even a high-level professional sports or sporting in some way where you're, like chaos is at a high stress level and you've got to figure right. out how to deal with chaos and add structure and order, like it's very hard because if you don't live in those worlds and you didn't have to build things or didn't live the life that we're talking about, even as entrepreneurs, like it's hard to relate to people that then have chaos in their life. And like, <laughs> it's like semi chaos comparatively, let's say like t- maybe a fraction, like 12% of what it's like to build a food <laughs> business over 24 years, just saying. And, um, and you're like, are you seriously disrailing? And um, it, and I, and I made this mistake recently, actually, is I let too many people come into my life that were chaos that didn't do well in chaos that were coming to me to look to me because I have order and it really uh-huh. derailed me and I never really <laughs> saw like it was the first time I'm like oh yeah I now have more people trying to um, get help from me than I'm getting help from or surrounding myself and growing in that particular right. field and it really was a weird thing because it is exactly this like the emotional bankruptcy that happens after a situation of dealing with something when you're at a higher level of dealing with chaos or composure or creating equanimity which it's like I don't know how to explain it guys it's like when in the middle of a game it's the shit's going on and the star player makes the three pointer that saves the match well everyone's right. like oh my god of course he made it well not of course he made it Not no one else on the team got the ball no one else right. was put in that situation no one else had the confidence to handle the chaos that was going on or the stress to shoot the basketball and have a hope of making it and even if his is 30% it's still probably 90% higher than anyone else's right. you know no I do and people will say something like you know when it's hot in the kitchen it's like 110 degrees and then you'll talk to somebody and they're like Oh, it was hot at work today. And I look at them and I feel almost like, are you crazy? Like it's hot at work. Like you haven't been here yet. But again, it doesn't make me feel better, but it makes me feel like you guys have no idea. (laughs) Like I just, I agree with you. Like it's hard for people to identify that have corporate jobs and sit in an office all day and go home and say, I'm tired. 
and you, you've been on your feet, you have food all over you, you smell like a thousand different things, and you put out 10 fires, and then you're like, I'm tired. It's just a different level. I know. And, and there was a time I'd, I'd work it. in the office for like eight hours a day. Then I'd like go home, like hang out with my, my Deborah, my ex, and we'd eat dinner. And then I had to go back to work and work and train the night shift actually in the manufacturing plant because no one would want to travel during COVID. And this right. is like 22 <laughs> years into the business. Right. I'm doing this shit. And everyone's like, right. what's going on? I'm like, I'm I'm adding, trying to keep this thing together during chaos because nothing in here is trying to do that. But it's right. a superpower that happens. You just know that you have to. And for anyone else that would work like even two jobs, they're just like, oh my gosh, my day was so stressful. I'm like, right. whoa, whoa, whoa. Your first job <laughs> yeah. sitting behind the desk was stressful. Right. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And so when people have three jobs, I don't even care how much money they have. Much respect right. to those people because how the frick do you keep track of a schedule like that? You know? Right. And it's like... Yeah, no. And a guaranteed paycheck and all those things. Like, yes. I don't even want to hear about You have health benefits. <laughs> you have a guaranteed paycheck. You get uh, yeah. two weeks of vacation. And wait, what is this PTO? Personal time off? Oh, no. I don't want to hear your story. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes us kind of snobs, right? I <laughs> know. Uh, it's like a, I always say it's the gift of giving. It gives us a superpower. And it, it's like really it a does. gift. And it's just it's hard when you're outside of food entrepreneurs or outside restaurateurs that have done it or, like I said, even farmers in some way. But restaurants are way different. It's. Not only is it, and I used farming just because it, it seems like cast, but when you get into the restaurant side, you have the vendors, you have the customers, you have the food, oh. you have the cooks, you have the people that don't show up, and you have really angry customers. Like every once and the in Uber lot, drivers, oh. and the DoorDash drivers, and the Grubhub drivers oh. who don't always speak English, don't always grab the right bag, or don't sometimes know what the hell steal it about. and never report yes. it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. <laughs> just like, and so, that yeah. whole There's extra just... layer that the whole delivery driver oh, thing added God. was just, I can't even, like, people don't realize how fast that grew. And it's the wild, oh. wild west of food. And whatever they did, they've shrunk the margins on the restaurants. They've increased oh, sure. the price to the client. It's like and having a pimp. Yes. You, over oh, half sure. your money goes to the freaking service charge now. I'm just oh, yeah. like 15%, I think it is, now that they just upped it to. And it's like, hmm. And the restaurant I'm one of their tour, best tours, trust me, I know. Yeah, and the restaurant's paying the delivery fee now because they want to remain competitive because they can't otherwise because they got a right. zero fee. And like in the thing. So I'm not against them, but it's just like, I get it, you think you're helping, but I think there's a little bit of a money grab going on right now yeah, at such there needs a large to be some scale. Regulations, yeah, either. there needs to be regulation. There needs to be proper taxes. There needs to be pushing back on how much these companies can charge for a service and how much they can take from the drivers that are actually delivering it and how much their the restaurants are having to now mark up their food to make the, right. the food price. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Everyone has to keep marking up the price to keep making money. And if it's a right. percentage, the restaurants have to keep marking up their food to pay for the, the percentage. So it's like constantly changing the percentage that will never change. But the higher their food costs get, the higher the percentage gets in dollars by nature, even if it's constantly 15%. The more I increase my price, that dollars keep getting higher and higher. So you're fighting a battle you're never going to win. And not to mention packaging, which keeps going through the roof. Yeah. 
Like now you have to package everything individually. And then, you know, you have to add extra sauces. And God forbid you forget one component of their meal because there's 10 components. Now they just get a refund. Oh, it is. It's a crazy time. It's the, um, we really, I don't know what we're doing to our food system. And I'm not, we've allowed too much technology into a tangible good. And that's right. my opinion, but we, it's here nor there. And we've allowed too much foreign influence, particularly China, France, Netherlands, maybe even some other places, India, depending on where the food's coming from. We've allowed too much foreign influence on our food systems also, which also is part of the technological problem. And we're thinking like technology, but food is not technology. Food is something that already went through the technology advancements. That's why it's right. our food. And we already went through picking it as humans, what we could eat and not eat without dying. Or, you know, Justin, don't eat that berry. Okay, okay, don't eat that berry. You know, I've already done that. (laughs) You know, so the science and the technology and the advancements are already there. We just need to diversify the sources going into our body. And I also don't think people realize the value of somebody who cooks. And they never will. Like, you know, chefs aren't notoriously wealthy people. Restaurant owners, small restaurant owners, I'm not talking like the Patina group and stuff like that, you know, aren't notoriously wealthy people. They're freaking hardworking people that put their heart and soul into something every single day without a huge reward. I mean, it's so funny people's perception. I drive a Prius. You know what I mean? Like, I don't drive a Prius because I can afford a Bentley. I drive a Prius, well, number one, because it's practical, and two, that's what I can afford. And people will say, oh, you're so busy. Oh, and if I'm not there, oh, you must be on vacation. No, I stayed home because my kid was home. I did this because my kid, you know, like that's when I'm not at work. But the value of what we do is just missed completely because we're probably the one profession, maybe outside of teachers and maybe a few farmers, a few others that you'll never be able to automate completely. You know, I know there's a machine that can make a burger, but like, really, I mean, I'm not impressed by that, but there's just so few people that really cook from the heart like that. And I think without that, you're going to miss a part of our society. That is probably one of the most valuable parts. And people need to take note with that and pay food people more. I mean, I know I hear all this stuff about fast food workers, and that's not what I'm talking about. But we do these big caterings, and these people are like, well, we need to feed our employees with $12 a head. And I'm like, what do you want me to do for $12? Like, where's my value to you? You know, I know it's like we you want to do it. We do in healthcare, we we're supposed to feed the population with like $5.75 to yeah. $8.50. Like, you want nutritious food in their body. Delivered right. and all the service and made from yeah. scratch and delivered on our yeah. trucks and fresh from the farm also and turned and around delicious. in 24 hours <laughs> and delicious to you. Right. 8.50. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's like, like, okay, yeah. No, not going to happen anymore. And anyone who tells you they're going to do it, they're just trying to get the contract to grab a land grab because who the hell's paying? Can't, no one can pay that anymore. Nobody. And, nobody. Nobody. Nobody, even twelve bucks an hour, twelve dollars per head is yeah. is really small minded based the on packaging is a portion of that. Yeah. The labor. Yeah. I mean, if unless I gave you spaghetti and butter, okay, maybe. But still, where's the profit in it? You know, come on, people. Just value what we do. Just value what we do. That's all I ask people. I agree. 
Thank you, Annalisa, for coming on the You're show. Welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone in the audience for listening in. I love you guys. Where can they find you on social media and on the internet, Annalisa? We're at Soul Delicious LA on Instagram. And our website is annie'ssoldelicious.com. Also on TikTok under Soul Delicious LA. But I'm new to it, so it's not the best TikTok ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure out TikTok either. And I actually <laughs> had one like three, four, five years ago when I was in France. Uh-huh. I started using it. I never, I keep losing them. TikTok's really hard for me, and I'm getting better at social media. I'm 43, and I'm just, I don't like it very much because I find it like, I'm, just, I, I get it, it rewards you and you need it as a business, but I'm just like, it can be such a distraction, a disruption in right, a day. Right, for sure. And so that's the hard part about it. But luckily, I have a 16-year-old kid who's like a TikTok kid, so um, he's going to start working at the business for me, too, because he gets it, and he knows what people want to see, where me, I'm just like, oh, turkey wings this weekend, people. Like, you know, I, I, I love what I do, but I don't know how to present it properly on tiktok apparently i know now they everyone wants reels i'm, I'm working through them i've just des, designed right. a bunch i'm like oh man i got lots of strides to go here but i always tell them you rather have me in the kitchen than being tiktok famous trust me <laughs> yeah i agree that's how i feel also um thank you again annalisa you thank got you everyone it. And if you ever come to la please come and say hi we'd love to see you you're gonna see me because i will be in la march 9th through 13th basically so i have to be you out there it. i'm gonna do some recordings deal. out there actually and i will come by and visit you you got it thank you so much thank you and everyone who's listening in thank you guys for listening in i love you guys again share the episode if you Trying to find us, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts and at Justin Food Entrepreneurs on Instagram. And there's a phone number on there. You can text us if you want to be on the show. Um, that's it. And we're out. Thank you again, Annalisa. Yeah, thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.